0: I'm always asking myself the question, do I like this? Or am I doing this for some other imaginary audience that's out there?
1: Most of us have two lives. The life we live and the unlived life within us. We all have our own road to walk. Nothing's perfect and there's gonna be a price for everything. There are no rules. Welcome to The Resistance. Featuring meaningful
0: conversations... I
1: think I'm grieving the death of the part of me. It's not
0: about being the star and being seen. It's about...
1: That explore that very space between who we are and who we say we want to be. I'm your host, Matt Connor. Duncan Sheik learned very early in his career what sort of songs would light up the marketplace. It was 25 years ago this year that the very first single from his very first album, would go on to become a Billboard mainstay. It was a song called Barely Breathing, and it would stay on the Billboard Top 100 for an incredible 55 weeks. It sent him on tour coast-to-coast, and it actually earned him his first Grammy nomination. Over the last two and a half decades, Duncan has learned the flip side of that coin, the importance of creating art that first and foremost is interesting to him. The marketplace will make its demands, but all too often that comes at a cost to the artist. And Duncan's primary interest is about authenticity over accolades. Of course, on this episode of The Resistance, Duncan also says he still struggles with that, too. What's amazing is that Duncan has enjoyed tremendous success on two fronts as a songwriter. Not only has he enjoyed the early pop success of his self-titled, but he's also become a celebrated composer. In 2007, his musical Spring Awakening was a Broadway sensation and won eight Tony Awards, It also grabbed that Grammy that eluded him the first time around. Most recently, Duncan released Live from Cafe Carlyle. It's a wonderful retrospective that spans a career of seven full-length albums, and it adds a few covers and even something from his other musical productions like American Psycho or The Secret Life of Bees. I really enjoyed sitting down with Duncan to hear more about the early success, and how that's hovered overhead as he grappled with his own identity, and also how theater gave him a new outlet as a songwriter. Here's our conversation with Duncan Sheik. Well, Duncan, I'd I'd love to start here where we start all of our interviews here on the Resistance, and that's with our source material from Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. Let me just read this opening quote, and I'd love to get your response to it. Uh, Pressfield writes, "This most of us have two lives." the life we live, and the unlived life within us. And between the two stands the resistance. So, Duncan, I would just love to know for you, what does resistance look like, whether personal or professional, and how are you wrestling with that?
0: I've been thinking about it a little bit this morning, and there's there's so many levels to it and layers to it and interpretations to it that I've been you know sort of grappling with in the back of my mind on on the face of it the unlived life just from a purely practical and and sort of from a standpoint of reality the unlived life is just is really just the life that you have yet to live so basically we're talking about from this moment on if in the context of The unlived life that you might have lived in the past, you know, I think pretty much everybody has some regrets, big and small, about the way they've handled certain things and gone about things. But of course, you know, I I try to live in a way where I have as few regrets as possible. I'm practicing Buddhist and have been since I was 19. And you know, it's it's kind of a it's it's kind of a a, a tenet of of my, of my particular stripe of Buddhism that I practice that you attempt to live a life where you have no regrets at the end. But of course, that's that's really easy to say as a platitude and, and very difficult to to pull off. You know, one of the things that sort of jumped to mind in terms of the unlived life and and regrets, sort of on a Maybe, on a less important and dramatic scale, sort of this idea of like procrastination <laughs> and 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 the degree to which I put stuff off in terms of you know my creative pursuits and time that I could have been directly sort of writing or recording or or producing something or or kind of being engaged in in even in another medium. Where I've sort of just spent time doing other things, and and maybe beating myself up for that to some extent. But you know, again, when I when I really think about it, I think everything that you do and that you experience sort of becomes you know grist for the mill. And maybe it's not such a bad thing that you're that I you know that I haven't just constantly been sitting there like churning out stuff you know you sort of you need you need lots of input in order to have a decent output and so you know i, I try to make sure that the things i'm inputting into my consciousness are books or you know maybe audio books but but you know real books as well as opposed to just like sitting around watching youtube all day that being said there's a lot of amazing stuff on YouTube, you know, just even as a, as somebody who makes music there, there's all kinds of folks who are post things about gear or uh, that, that's really fascinating, you know, as somebody who's involved in a sort of spiritual practice, there's a lot of stuff on there about that. So, you know, I don't even, I, I, I hesitate to even categorize things as sort of sort of junk media versus nourishing media. But, you know, I do, I do, try and and you know I do try and keep the balance towards the sort of more obviously nourishing things to the extent that I can.
1: <laughs> I I want to go back if if you'll let us to maybe some resistance in the rearview mirror or or at least that's the question I have for you is, is like you experienced yeah pretty big success early on and and I and and then sure I guess I have questions there, and then I also have questions about then jumping yeah. into the world of theater and 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 musicals. And so sure. I, I'd love to I'd love to start with the former and just say, what did the success of the debut album of Barely Breathing, etc., did that create a different kind of resistance or fear or pressure for you that um, that you had to learn to stare down?
0: Yes. Very much. I mean, I've talked about this a lot, but I'll, I'll try and distill it in that that makes sense in terms of this um, quote. When I went off to make my first record for Atlantic, sort of which I, that, that process began really in 1995, so exactly 25 years ago. You know, obviously, you have the highest hopes and highest aspirations, and I was really thrilled and and honored and excited about being on a label as storied and sort of important as Atlantic records. And, and certainly at that time there, there were still people there at the label that were just, you know, completely part of rock music history, people like Ahmet Erdogan. And and that was, that was amazing. And, and the, the experience of making my first record in France with Rupert Hein, who produced the record was you know, by and large, just extraordinary and really positive and beautiful. And, you know, there were lots of th- things about uh, that process that, you know, that are really sort of memories that I'll always cherish. You know, in particular, you know, the recording the basic tracks. In, Rupert had bought this chateau, sort of north of Paris, and it was just this really beautiful environment. And and it wasn't it wasn't luxurious by any stretch inside the inside the building. You know, it was all sort of IKEA furniture, but the but the building itself and the grounds were amazing. And you know, we were in France, so the food was pretty good. And <laughs> and that was a sort of a great, you know, it was beautiful. And then like recording the string arrangements in at Metropolis Studios in London towards the end of that process and mixing it there. Those were powerful moments for me and, and where I really felt like, oh, you know, this lifelong process of my, you know, 25 years at that point, my lifelong process of trying to get to this place of making making a good record you know that dream is coming true so that's all to the good and then when i came back to the states and the record was finished and we sort of began the the process of getting it out there and marketing it and you know i started to tour with jewel and barely breathing went to radio and you know we shot a music video right away things got much more complicated for me and you know, feelings about how I wanted to be represented and how I wanted the record to be seen and in what company I, you know, the company I wanted to keep musically. In other words, like bands that were important, bands and artists that were important to me and that I was influenced by and that I felt like I had artistic kinship with versus the sort of bands and artists that I was maybe... Seen in the same light as because they were also like on top forty radio in 1996. At that time, that that instantly became a very big source of sort of discontent and concern and frustration. <laughs> and you know the fact is that there there wasn't there weren't a lot of bands or artists who were on top 40 radio in America at that time who I felt kind of any kinship with you know I I was I mean probably my influences are are probably fairly obvious but you know in the 90s you know I was listening to Jeff Buckley and Bjork and Radiohead and then some of the other more esoteric stuff than that and stuff from the previous decade uh, like the late Talk Talk albums and people like David Sylvian, and the 4AD records like Cocktail Twins and Dead Can Dance and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And those were my influences and what I felt like were my antecedents. But I was sort of, I felt like I was painted into this corner with these very sort of corporate rock and pop bands and artists who, like I said, I just didn't feel an an aesthetic connection to at all even though looking back on it there it was probably closer than i thought it was so that was a, that was a sort of a, a constant struggle and I'm sure that I wanted my cake and eat it too. Like I, you know, I wanted the sort of the the money and the overt success and the, the fame and the notoriety and the magazines and all that kind of stuff. I wanted all of that stuff, but you know, I also wanted the, the, the sort of above it all cool factor of these other artists who I respected and, and whose music I either, you know, listened to a lot or even revered, you know, that, that was something that I had to you know I had to learn to get over and and I don't think i' I've ever really got over it, but <laughs> I, you know i'm I'm getting better at it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> did the success of that album hang over your head on subsequent albums?
0: Well, it did in in a couple ways. One of them is just the sort of obvious fact that when your first record sells seven hundred thousand copies and you get a grammy nomination and and you have a song that you know gets over a million spins at radio and sits on the radio sits on the charts for over a year there there's a, a set of expectations about what you're going to do next where you're going to maybe get sort of close to that if not beat it of course my second record came out and to date it's probably sold Ninety thousand copies, or maybe it sold a hundred thousand copies. I don't know, but and that would be a pretty good number in today's universe. But yeah. in nineteen ninety eight, that was sort of a, a real disappointment. And so, just from from the standpoint of the people at the label, and you know, just the culture at large, that was a moment when Pearl Jam and Backstreet Boys and and Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears were you know they were selling millions or 5 million records or 10 million records you know the first week the record would come out it was like crazy time that was like a very hard reality to kind of swallow when the sort of success of the of the following things that I did was not as overt and and you know that frankly it just didn't sell as many copies and they didn't get the same kind of attention and you know in a way i i I actually sort of got what I was looking for, and that I think you know the people who who did really get into humming and and phantom moon those were people who who uh, who had more sort of outside the box taste, but you know that that came with its own price, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I wondered if that was if if that would have been problematic for you then like if I could have talked to you then to sort of feel like you were pressing up against those expectations or whether it was freeing in that way
0: Yeah no, I know I think I think that I it was just it was like something that was the kind of background microwave radiation in my consciousness that like whatever I did there was always some expectation in the back of my mind whether I wanted it there or not that I'm supposed to have another hit on the radio you know and that and that was that was and is sort of a I think a, a not a very healthy or productive or good thought for me personally as an artist. I don't think that that helps me do my best to work I think there are there are people out there for whom this idea of like making hits is like a really great way for them to work because it's just that's what they do that's what they love and that's what they want to create and that and 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 they're good at it and and you know sometimes they hit the bull'seye. For me, it's a little bit more like I I, I need to create stuff that is uh, you know unique to my own artistic and aesthetic sort of goals and and just my my own sort of artistic point of view. It's you know I do my I do better work when I'm sort of not second guessing what a what a a big sort of audience of of the american populace or the world music listening populace when i'm not trying to second guess what they might like or might want to listen to i do i do much better work and you know that's sort of in a way, it, it brings me back to a, a, a more spiritual, if you will, way of looking at things. You know, we we really only ha- all we really have is our own subjectivity. Like that's the only reality that we know is totally true and real. And and so I, you know, I had to kind of, I had to kind of really, and I continue to have to do this to force myself to to kind of make sure that my own true subjective sensibility is at work when I'm working on something or when I'm listening to something or just, you know, sort of in the process of creating my own stuff is that I'm, you know, I'm sort of always asking myself the question, do I like this? Or am I doing this for some other imaginary audience that's out there? and the the latter is is not a is not a productive way for me to work um, but it, you know but I, there's always this sort of like little little devil inside me who 's like, "Oh, make sure you do this because the kids'll like it you know whatever i mean that's and it 's just nonsense
1: <laughs> by the way, have you always been cognizant of that, or did that come into your career sometime
0: um, i think you know I think that that I'm articulating it one way now that I wouldn't necessarily have articulated it in 1998, but I do think the 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 sort of the central idea and struggle has always been there. The sky today is it's bloody grey. I'm surprised you look. bigger stage was no surprise we Cut right through I heard the questions I heard the dodge they Made up names it's not a sin.
1: You mentioned Phantom Moon, and yet you were also working on Twelfth Night around that same general era, right? Well, so, wh- yeah. like, wh- was that <sighs> the transition to was that the transition to stage for you,
0: or? Okay, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll tell you specifically what what happened. Basically, uh, in 1999, after the sort of my second album cycle of Humming was kind of winding down. I mean, I had toured a lot to promote that record, trying to salvage what was mostly a sort of disappointing process (laughs) with the release of it. And at that moment, you know, I I mentioned before Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears, and like there was sort of Backstreet Boys and In Sync. like there was this sort of movement in pop music that was, that sort of cropped up kind of post- the kind of grunge slash alternative. There was like a mini moment of grunge and more, you know, sort of acoustic alternative music that happened in the mid nineties. And that was subsumed by this really sort of, this sort of Max Martin sort of ultra pop music that yeah. that happened at the end of the nineties in, in, the aughts. I mean, talk about not feeling kinship. I really felt separate from that universe. I mean, like the idea that you would actually dance in a music video was so bizarre to me. That, like, I got, like, it, was like <laughs> it was just so foreign to my consciousness. <laughs> All I could do is sort of make fun of that stuff. There, now Justin Timberlake is a billionaire and I'm not, but you know, here we are. So, um, uh, <laughs> so, yeah. We're, so, so, really, what happened was I met this guy, Stephen Sater, who I met him because he's also practicing Buddhist in, here in New York City. And he was and is a playwright. He had written a play that had a song lyric in it. He asked me if I would write some music for that lyric, which it was, you know, it was a cool play and it was a very simple lyric. And that was sort of an easy thing for me to do. So, I wrote and recorded this song for him. It's called A Boat on the Sea. Um, And Stephen, sort of being the very creative person that he is, he just started faxing me lyrics and lyrics upon lyrics upon lyrics, some of them that were connected to some of his plays, some of which I think were just lyrics he was sort of writing. And they were fairly impressionistic and fairly poetic, And some of them were sort of enigmatic, but all in a really interesting, beautiful way, I thought. And so I just started writing these kind of acoustic these well, I started writing music for these lyrics using a sort of acoustic instrument palette and issuing anything electric or electronic as a as a sort of a uh, sort of a stiff arm to what was going on in the rest of the sort of pop music world, and you know I had just gotten the the Mark Hollis solo album. He was the lead singer of Talk Talk, and he he had made this record that had that was just all acoustic instrumentation. It's a really beautiful album. Sort of the last record he he made before he went into retirement. And I was very influenced by that and you know, listening to like a lot of Nick Drake and things like that. So I, I wanted to make this all acoustic record that would have some string and woodwind arrangements that Simon Hale ultimately did really a beautiful job with those. And I sort of got lucky in that Atlantic would never have put out that record, but uh, Nonesuch was part of the Warner Music Group, and so Bob Hurwitz heard what I was doing, and and he agreed to put it out on Nonesuch. And so that was a you know a very classy <laughs> place to 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 put out a record like Phantom Moon. And and of course the expectations are different there in terms of sales and things like that. So that in a way you know again it, it worked out really well for me if you look at it in the big picture but of course at the moment I'm you're still sort of thinking oh well you know why why where's my gold record you know where's my grammy nomination where's all the stuff that i had 2 years ago so it felt artistically satisfying and successful and then there was a part of me that was you know that was missing all the trappings <laughs> so what i ended up doing was like doubling down <laughs> And uh and and Stephen gave me a copy of the play, a translation of the German play Spring Awakening. I think it was the Ted Hughes translation. And he said, Read you know, read this play. I think it would it would be really great if we adapted it as a musical. And I, you know, I was I, I did do the music for Twelfth Night. It was actually a little bit it was actually a year after that. But but I, you know, the first thing I said to Stephen was, "Oh man, like I, you know, Stephen, I am the last person who should be writing a musical because I just, you know, it's not, it's not a medium that I'm super fond of, to be honest. Like, <laughs> and you know, I mean, again, like I had done musicals when I was a kid and in in elementary school, you know, I was the Artful Dodger and Oliver, and I was in Annie uh-huh. and Barnum and you know like stuff like that, but you know it just it wasn't very cool. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I with some cynicism, I read the I read this play, and I really liked the play. And I was like, I, I thought to myself, I thought, well, this is really this is this play is great because it's so racy and it's so it has such a sort of. Punk rock attitude about it, and it's this sort of great, like anti bourgeois, sticking its finger up at at the at the sort of um, stodgy morality of of you know <laughs> of sort of Lutheran Germany of the late nineteenth century, and it was also you know so there's something really dark and then beautiful about those relationships between those adolescents, and and I thought well you know what if what if you did a piece of musical theater where stylistically the the music hewed closer to what the cool kids are listening to on their ipods these days you know this was 2000 2001 uh, you know so you know what if what if the music was kind of alternative rock as opposed to the style of music which i shall call musical theater music whatever that style is Sure. And that was like a kind of a light bulb that went off in my head. And Stephen was very, he responded well to that. And then we went to Michael Mayer, who directed the show ultimately. And Michael really responded well to that idea, even though he came from a very traditional musical theater sort of background. Um, so I began writing those songs in 2000, um, sort of in earnest, and you know, again, I, I, I think there was a set of things that I was influenced by at that time, which was kind of like you know folk music, and then sort of 20th century classical music, things like Arvo Pert and Steve Reich and, and John Adams. And then you know, alternative rock for lack of a better word. Um, but you know, it was bands like The Doves and of course, Radiohead things like that. And then I had kind of like, I had sort of gotten over my, not gotten over, but I, this sort of stand that I had taken about electric and electronic instrumentation. I, you know, I sort of let that go. And I was actually listening to a fair amount of electronic music as well. But again, pretty, I don't want to say avant-garde, but it was, you know, left of center electronic music. And so there, so there were these kind of sort of four genres of music that were that ended up in the stew that became the score of Spring Awakening. Was electronic music, 20th century classical music, folk music, and, and kind of alternative rock. And, you know, of course, in the end, it was seen as a sort of alternative rock thing because totally fucked and bitch of living, you know, just sort of guitar-driven things. But, um, you know, that was that was the amalgam of musical styles that, that went into the show. And I, it wasn't even on purpose that I was trying to be revolutionary but it was kind of revolutionary i mean of course there had been tommy and there had been rent and there you know there had been some things that had rock music aspects within them but to me a lot of those things were musical theater music dressed up in rock clothing and i was trying to do something that was like authentically you know alternative rock and and i do think that, that that sort of comes through in the show and it's a big part of why it was successful and i think you you see that with things most obviously things like hamilton where it's like yeah you know it, it sort of it did help move things along in the form to where it became open to other genres and more contemporary genres of, yeah. of music stylistically
1: yeah i i i think that's cl- i think that's very clear there when you have that success there as well, does that open up the permission you feel to kind of chase
0: anything? Well, yeah, it did <laughs> for better or worse. Um, you know, I think cutting to, to, 10 years later, you know, or five to 10 years later, working on American Psycho, and, and they're trying to do a completely sort of electronic music score that was even more daring in a way. But, and maybe, maybe it was a sort of a bridge too far. But yeah, I, I did feel like, oh, you know, the key for me is to really try and just always be like breaking new ground and to break rules and to do stuff that is thumbing its nose up at tradition. (laughs) And, you know, look, it's not that I disavow any of these approaches. I just, I understand that just thumbing your nose up at tradition for the sake of doing that is sort of useless. It needs to have a purpose behind it.
1: listening to the resistance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for more information and further episodes, you can find us at listentotheresistance.com. Engineering, production, and additional music by Jay Kirkpatrick. My name is Matt Connor, and I'm your host. Thanks for listening.